Ayers on the Road, value-based parenting and life balance ideas from world-traveling family coaches. Here's Richard and Linda Ayer. Hello and welcome back to Ayers on the Road. We are so excited to be with you. We are still in Hawaii. We don't know where you are, but I'm sorry to tell you that because if you are in the Intermountain West, it is snowing. You're getting a lot of snow. Oh, gosh. I'll bet you are uh, up to your chins with snow there. We hear it's just snowing, snowing, snowing. But we, so we aren't going to tell you what the weather looks like here. Well, we did have, we had a really fun time on the last podcast because we got talking about my ancestors who were rabbit farmers. (laughs) And Linda, (laughs) Linda got into a laughing fit. And I just was wishing it was on video instead of just on audio because. You know how some people get in like a sneezing fit and they can't stop or coughing. They can't stop coughing. Well, Linda's that way with laughing. (laughs) If she gets going, she starts to cry. Her tears are coming out of her eyes and she's laughing and she can't get her breath. And that was happening. Oh, my goodness. I haven't done that for a while, (laughs) but it was crazy. We call it the giggles. I really could not stop laughing. But we call call it the giggles. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. Where did you come from? Of course, it's called the giggles. Anyway. But but um, the reason I bring it up is that we were talking last week about our ancestors, and this week, in a way, we're going to extend that conversation, hopefully in a really productive way, because we want to talk about the power of extended families and the sad fact that we're losing extended families. Now, definition of terms, a nuclear family is a is parents and children, and that's what most Americans think of when they think of a family. They think of some parents and a child or two or three children living in a home. And an extended family or a three-generation family really is the norm in much of the world, particularly in Asia and in much of Latin America, where people actually live under the same roof with more than two generations of family. And it turns out that the extended family is powerful in ways that we had no idea of. It really is true. We are so sad to think about the fact that our society is going to the society of the individual. Yeah. I mean, we're moving to... um, a place that is just so sad. If if you're just on your own, um, people often don't want to live with anyone else. They just want to be who they are and go to work and have their own time and so on. And uh, they're losing out on so much on these generations that we're going to be talking about today. You know, we used to, as a society, uh, at least conservative thinkers worried about divorce and the divorce rate was increasing and and we were worried about it and so on and then we moved away we moved to a deeper worry which was the people weren't getting married at all the divorce rate was actually going down and the reason was because people weren't getting married and they were cohabitating instead and now as linda just pointed out we're taking an even a further step in many western countries where 
people don't even live together. They 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 just want to live on their own. In other words, individuality, I we call it the cult of the individual, the the need for options, the need for complete freedom, the need not to have responsibility or be tied down has become has blossomed to the point where commitments aren't being made and where groups are not forming and of course if you don't have families you you also start to not have communities and so on and society can really break down now we're not sociologists and we're not trying to point out anything that is not obvious to to everyone but we want to talk a little today about what we can do about that in our own families how we can link our families together even when we don't live under the same roof how we can start thinking of families as bigger than just parents and children or just people that happen to be living in the same house. How can we do that? And we've been reading a couple of articles in um, Atlantic Magazine that are that are really interesting. We just want to read you a little bit from a couple of these and, and then commentate on it just a little bit. So there's one called What Kids Learn from Hearing Family Stories. It's by a woman named Elaine Reese. Let us read you just a little from that. Dad told me a story. From dad, when... dad, this is a kid talking to his dad. Oh, oh, here we go. Dad, tell me a story from when you were little. Tell me the story about the time you met your best friend, Chris, at school, six-year-old Alex who had just started school himself, snuggles into his pillow and catches his dad's hand in the dark. They have finished the nightly reading of Tintin. And now it's time for just one more story before Alex goes to sleep. Now, everyone knows that reading books with children is a good idea. And we've got research that shows what it does for children, for their imagination and their language skills and so on. But what what this woman is saying, and I'll, I'll read from another paragraph, what most parents don't know is that everyday family stories, like the one that Alex's dad spun out that night, confer many of the same benefits of reading, but also a lot of additional benefits. So, for instance, experimental studies show that when parents learn to reminisce about everyday events with their preschool children in more de detailed ways, their children tell richer, more complete narratives to other adults one to two years later compared to children whose parents didn't learn the new reminiscing techniques. Children of the parents who learned new ways to reminisce also demonstrate better understanding of other people's thoughts and emotions. These advanced narrative and emotional skills serve children well in the school years when reading complex material and learning to get along with others. In the preteen years, children whose families collaboratively discuss everyday events and family history more often have higher esteem and stronger concepts and adolescents with a strong knowledge of family history have been more robust have more robust identities better coping skills and lower rates of depression and anxiety family storytelling can help a child grow into a teen who feels connected to the important people in her life isn't that That's fascinating really interesting and we have some personal experience with that there's a there's a fellow named Bruce Filer who we got to know and had a nice lunch with once in Brooklyn and he was part of some studies and, and wrote actually a book on some studies about 
resilience in children. And wasn't that eye-opening, honey? It was amazing. Uh, they did a study, and we've talked about this but probably years ago, um, about the fact that they had done a study asking these children in New York City, uh, in New York City, questions, 25 questions of uh, how much they knew about their families. And it, and it was particularly just, their grandparents and their great grandparents. Well, or their parents. Yeah, their even their parents, parents too. Parents. How much did they how know about those know about lives? That? And then an interesting thing happened in New York City, 9-11. And 9-11 happened to every one of those children, which was a crisis, which was a horrible, life-changing thing in their lives. And they went back and did the study again and studied these kids again and found that the kids who were most resilient from that terrible crisis were the ones that knew the most about their families. Yeah. It's yeah. really fascinating. It was shocking, the correlation between the, res the resilience and, and sort of a ability to come to grips with crisis and how much they knew about their roots, where they came from, what their identity was. It was just really, really powerful. Um, it's a, it's interesting that you would have, uh, that we would have read this this week because I was just reading a book uh, that was suggested from an article in The Atlantic by a friend about this very same thing, about the family culture is so important for children. And it really is incredible the difference that it makes. She um, she said that a family culture is is really part of the a, ch a child's fiber, whether they know it or not. I mean, how they hear about family stories, how they how they think about where they came from, is so important to their well being. And I, let us read just a little more. All families have stories to tell, regardless of their culture or their circumstances. Of course, not all these stories are idyllic ones. Research shows that children and adolescents can learn a great deal from stories of life's most difficult moments. And that's what you've always said, Linda. The stories are oscillating, right? Right. Well, I always give the example of my mother, who grew up in a family with 10 children and uh, in Star Valley, Wyoming. And uh, they all were happy that they were from about ages 16 to 17, maybe to a baby, a, a new baby. And then the Spanish influenza hit Star Valley, which was awful. And their mother uh, and was the bishop's wife. She invited people into their home to take care of them. And you can guess what happened. She got it and died. And then that same week, her two babies died, uh, a two-year-old and an infant. And they took them out in the night, buried them. And you just think, oh, this is awful. This is awful. But then um, what happened in the long run is quite remarkable. That family pulled themselves together. Obviously, right. it was a hard time. But the dad had these eight children. My mom was the uh, third oldest in the family, but those older kids really helped to raise those younger kids. Eventually, the uh, grandpa married another woman who was a relative, actually, and she had five children. So there were 15 kids around the table, three meals a day. And the, what came out of that was resilience. I mean, it was really astonishing. 
this family just pulled together and created beautiful people. They all ended up, all the girls were school teachers who influenced lives that we'll never know. Uh, the guys were either businessmen or farmers that that were such good people. And I just think you can't you can't count out the culture that you have come from. It makes so much difference. But this resilience thing, going going through hard times and then coming out the other end is just remarkable. So just a couple more thoughts from this one article, and we've got another one to share, a quote or two. Um, Books contain narratives, but only family stories contain your family's personal narratives. Fortunate children get both. And then there's a really neat quote from Ursula Le Guin, a famous author. There have been great societies that did not use the wheel, but there have never been societies that did not tell stories. So they're pretty powerful. And then this other little article by a woman named Elizabeth Keating. I think, Linda, you found this particularly interesting because the problem is the kids don't know the right questions to ask. You you know, you might think, I'm going to read her first paragraph. You might think you already know your family's stories pretty well between childhood memories and reunions and family gatherings. You may have spent hours with your parents, grandparents, and aunts and uncles soaking up family lore, but do you really know as much as you think? As a professor of anthropology, I've been fascinated by the stories that families tell. And a few years ago, I started researching the tales that are passed down from generation to generation. And I found it's amazing how little people really know. This is so interesting because I just downloaded this on my phone. That's what I've been listening to while I've been walking. Oh, right, right. Elizabeth Keating is so fascinating. She was she she was so regretful because she, her mother died, and she thought she knew her mother really well. And then she realized she had not asked the right questions. She knew she asked her about her parents and yeah, her family. Yeah. She didn't ask about her. And she was so fascinated with what she learned after she passed away and was so regretting that she didn't think to ask them. So she has come up with amazing questions. And we'll we'll talk a little more about that in the second half. We'll take a little break and then come back and talk about some of the questions we should be asking our own ancestors, and teaching our children to ask other members of our family, right? Yes. So we've got some ideas for you. Hang on, and we'll be right back. Welcome back to Ayers on the Road. Here's Richard and Linda Ayer. And we're back about the importance of knowing about our ancestors and the gen- how important generations are. This Elizabeth Keating um, says, you know, when you hear these stories, you enter a different world than you are in, which is, is so true. That's the key because she's an anthropologist and she's saying, our, I'll read a little sentence, our elders may share some familiar anecdotes over and over, Again, but still, many of us have no broader sense of the world they lived in, especially what it was like before we came along. So a kind of genealogical amnesia is eating holes in these family histories as permanently as moths eat holes in the sweaters lovingly knitted by our ancestors. Um, You know, culture changes so much. I'm just, uh, oh, I'm in the depths of reading a 
book that my friend wrote about her childhood growing up with 10 children in Bear Lake Valley. And uh, it's such a different culture. 10 children, big sheep ranch, um, everybody eating together three meals a day. It's a totally, just, just reading it totally immerses you into a different world that is not like it is now. So but, let me just read one more thing that's leading into where I think okay. you're going, honey. Specificity is the key. So after asking a relative about the home they grew up in, follow up with requests for details. What did their windows look out onto? What did they hear when they woke up in the morning? When you ask for descriptions of an elder's childhood home and the neighborhoods they roamed around in, you'll hear stories that place you in a rich sensory world you knew little about. So ask what family dinners were like and what your relatives were taught about expressing emotion. Ask their worst first dates and where they bought their clothes. And remember that the most important questions can also be the plainest. One of my favorites is, what do you wish people knew about you? That one is a really good one because that is something that they don't share unless specifically asked. Yeah. I mean, can you imagine your mother saying, I wish people knew that how sad I was when da 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 da. You know, it, yeah. they unless they're asked the question. And I love the one about looking out the window. What did you see when you're growing up? When you looked out the window? I, I would love to answer that. In fact, we are doing this grandparenting class and we're thinking of uh, getting this in the hands of the people that are in our class. And I don't know whether you can hand that to your children and say, ask, <laughs> ask me these me, questions. Here's some questions you can yes. ask me. <laughs> um, but um, but there is a way, there is a way to do that so that you're really talking. You can live with somebody for a long time and not really know them, especially when it comes, it comes to family stories. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, we're also, and we're not going to have time to... F- now, wait, uh, before you go on, I just have one more thing. That oh, right, she up said, from Elizabeth Keating. That right. she said that was so interesting. She said, you are irre- irrevocably shaped, whether you know it or not, from your past, from your, your not only your childhood, but your parents and your grandparents. It has come down through, and it's so important to figure out Figure that out yeah, to yeah, go yeah. back and look yeah. at it and see what you can find. Yeah, it's just, it, it, this is really, a, and there's a much, much longer article also in Atlantic by David Brooks, who's one of our favorite writers. He's just such a great writer. We don't always agree with everything he says, but his the, the title is pretty, pretty stimulating and pretty uh, frightening in a way, pretty catchy. The nuclear family was a mistake. That's his title. The family structure we've held up as the cultural ideal for the past half century has been a catastrophe for many. It's time to figure out better ways to live together. Well, that's pretty bold. Yeah, well, I don't like that at and all. That, 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 that certainly is offensive to people who, who cling to the family as the basic unit of society like we do. But when you read it, what David Brooks is actually saying is, we need a bigger fam- bigger picture, a bigger definition of family, not just parents and children, but grandparents and great-grandparents and ancestors and aunts and uncles and cousins. And it's these bigger families that really make a difference. And they are actually the cultural norm throughout world history, large families with interrelationships. 
And and what I'm going to try to say in, in some writing I'm doing is we can't recreate those in the sense that we're going to go back and all live. We, we watched a movie last night because it was mentioned in this article called Avalon that started with people that immigrated to this country in in uh, the early 1900s and all lived together. And they lived, they happened to live in row houses in Baltimore, which is where I was born, actually. And we, my family lived in a row house in Baltimore, similar to the ones that were there. And the, the whole idea was they're all together, the cousins, the aunts, the uncles. And, you know, when someone has something to do, another person takes over. And there's the aunt if you need a babysitter. And there's the grandma getting everyone together for Sunday dinner. And these big, big groups, we can't recreate that. But what we can do is create, because of our technology and because of our ability to to reach out to people and see each other's faces like we just did five minutes before we started this show with our little twins who are 5,000 miles away, we can recreate those same ties and those same binds and those same large extended family familiarity and relationships because we have the technology to do it, even though we don't live together. Yeah, it really is interesting that we can. I mean, that was that was just not possible when our parents were growing up, obviously. Yeah. But this is a mm. magical thing that can keep our families together, but I don't know that we use it often enough. Here's what Brooks says. It, it sort of he summarizes the article before he even starts it. He says, the bottom line is we've made life freer for individuals and more unstable for families. We've made life better for adults, but worse for children. We've moved from big, interconnected, extended families, which help protect the most vulnerable people in society from the shocks of life, to smaller, detached nuclear families, a married couple and their children, which give the most privileged people in society room to maximize their talents and expand their options. The shift from bigger, interconnected, extended families to smaller and detached nuclear families ultimately led to a familial system that liberates the rich and ravages the working class and the poor. Wow, that is really powerful and really sad. I mean, I don't feel that's happening with our family. And probably those of you who are listening, you're feeling, no, that's not really the way my family is. Maybe some of you have been disconnected to your family. But I think we, as a whole, at least with our audience, have a connected culture with, you know, with our families. But of course, there are, we have a single son who's lived by himself for many, many years. But boy, years. is he connected to the rest of our family. But he is very Powerfully connected. connected. Exactly. And uh, he he is an introvert, so it's hard to bring him out. But he is amazing. He is the collector of our family history. He has 500 photos filed for us, which is so fabulous. And we just found that out the other day. He's not <laughs> advertising this. He told one of our kids that and was like, are you kidding me? This is fabulous. And uh, we love this guy well, so much. We're, but... we're so connected. But let me read you just to let Linda and I read, read one more little paragraph, and then we'll spend the rest of the show kind of talking about this. And it may lead into future episodes as well. 
Until eight, this is from the David Brooks article in the Atlantic. Until 1850, roughly three quarters of Americans older than 65 lived with their kids wow. and grandkids. Wow. Three fourths. Nuclear families existed, but they were surrounded by extended or corporate families. Extended families have two great strengths. Now, here he's comparing a large, extended, connected family with multiple generations and cousins and aunts and uncles and so on. He's comparing that to the, the small nuclear parents and children isolated by themselves family. And he says extended families have two great strengths. The first is resilience, just what you were saying earlier, honey. An extended family is one or more families in a supporting web your spouse and children come first, but there are also cousins, in-laws, grandparents, a complex web of relationships among, say, 7, 10, or 20 people, <laughs> or 55. <laughs> if, if a mother dies, siblings, uncles, aunts, and grandparents are there to step in. If a relationship between a father and a child ruptures, others can fill the breach. Extended families have more people to share the unexpected burdens when a kid gets sick in the middle of the day or when an adult unexpectedly loses a job. So isn't that powerful? And then he goes on to a second strength of extended families. The second strength of extended families is their socializing force. Multiple adults teach children right from wrong, how to behave toward others, how to be kind. Over the course of the 18th and 19th century, industrialization and cultural change began to threaten traditional ways of life. Many people in Britain and the United States doubled down on the extended family in order to create a moral haven in a heartless world. According to Ruggles, the prevalence of extended families living together roughly doubled from 1750 to 1900. That's interesting. Yeah. And this and this way of life was more common than at any other time before or since. Wow. So so this thing we call a family in America, the nuclear family of just the parents and the kids, is really the anomaly. It's the larger extended families. And what we what what Linda and I worry about, what we are concerned about is that people have given up on that. They've said, well, that was the old olden days. We can't do that anymore. We don't all live together. And we have smaller families, and many of us aren't even getting married at all, and we live alone, and they're just endless statements about how you can't recapture the past. Our feeling is that we've been given this way to reconnect, and we can use the technology that so many of us worry about as downgrading and undermining our kids. We can use that capacity of social media and reach out and, and texting and FaceTime and, and WhatsApp and all the rest to literally be in as close of touch with our extended families as people were when they actually lived together. Maybe not quite as much, maybe in a little different way, but we can value those bonds and relationships and support mechanisms as highly as they they were valued then, and we can gain the same benefits from them. We just had a meeting this week uh, with some friends, and we're talking about connecting to people. How can we connect better to people? And uh, one woman who actually had been in a mission with a lot of missionaries and was trying to help them individually, 
but it was so hard. It was so hard to remember and feel connected. And she said, as soon as I said to them, what could I, tell me what I can pray for you for. What are you worried about? What are your concerns? How can I pray for you? And uh, she took notes on it and it was amazing. And I, it was such a good idea because we have so many grandchildren, 34. I thought that's what I'm going to start doing with my grandchildren. I mean, not everyone because the little ones uh, are are different, but we have 12 teenagers right now who are going through hard times and we can so easily be connected them because of the internet. We can just say, how are you doing? But uh, not only what's going on, but what it, what are you worried about and what can I pray for you for? And I've gotten back some amazing answers this week. We just got a couple of minutes left, Linda, but I just you mentioned earlier this grandparenting class we're doing. It's really been an eye-opener for us and hopefully for many of the nearly a thousand participants in the class. And um, by the way, grandpa, if you're curious about that, grandparenting101.com. Just simple grandparenting101.com will will give you an overview of the class. But what I was going to say is that we're we're just we're so interested in the idea of the relationship between the grandparent and the parent and their teamwork in raising the children. The parents in charge, but the grandparents there as a support, a backup a storytelling, a link. In fact, the one we're doing, the next unit we're doing, the next visual, uh, um, the next seminar on Zoom, we're we're calling it an interesting word. We're calling it the trunk. And that's a metaphor of a tree where the grandparents can become the connecting link between the roots of their ancestors and these stories, these narratives, this identity, and the branches, which is the children and the grandchildren, the parent, the grandparents can be that powerful connecting trunk. And, you know, we just think this is worth a lot of thought, whether you're a parent or whether you're a grandparent or whether you're an aunt or an uncle or whether you're a cousin, how closely connected are you to the rest of your family? And are you aware of how powerful the benefits of that are, of getting connected. It really is so interesting to think about. We hope we've given you some things, some things to think about with your own family today. Um, Some questions to ask for your, to your elders, but also to reconsider yourself and where you are in this mix and how you can be more connected. So been great to be with you on ours on the road. Join us next time. It's going to be uh, we're going to be extending this extended family discussion. Right. And um, we love you. We, we we appreciate your family situation. And we know it's unique and different and special and unlike any other, just like ours is. But we also know we have a lot in common and a lot we can learn from each other. And also, can we connect this article to the show notes? Yeah, we can. We do that. We we can put those in, sure. Because I think that would be really good. It would be so interesting for you to read. So, thank you for joining us, and we'll see you next time on Ayers on the Road. Bye till then. 